This is a special podcast from the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors 2019 Chronic Disease Academy. Levitt Partners experts Bo Namalka, Susan Winkler, and Andrew Croshaw will discuss the future of value-based health, where they will share their predictions for the near and long-term future of healthcare and health policy. I just want to say a quick note about Levitt Partners. We are a health intelligence business, and we were founded by Mike Levitt, who is Secretary of Health, just right before President Obama, and then we've been 10 years old as of last month. So as experts in health intelligence, we like to think of ourselves as looking into the future and making predictions about what might come to pass. Now, doing that, there's an inherent danger that you might get it a bit wrong. But without looking into the future, you can't plan and strategize. So we're thankful to NACD, who've been close partners for four or five years now, as well as the CDC, who we get to work on great projects. So thank you, John, Marty, Gabriel, and others. Thank you. We are going to treat this as if I am your moderator slash anchor. And if you've watched a news channel, pick whatever channel of choice you like to, to watch. I don't look like Wolf Blitzer but, uh, and don't sound as intriguing as him. However, I will be your anchor and host. And I am joined by Andrew Croshaw. Andrew Croshaw is the CEO, rather, of Levitt Partners. Anything you want to say, Andrew? Bo, I just got on an airplane. My family and I were in Hawaii for spring break. And um, I left that vacation one day early because of the value and the impact of what's happening in this room today. So it's a real privilege to be here and spend some time with you. Thanks, Andrew. I'm joined here on my left by Susan Winkler. Uh, Many of you know Susan. She's been involved and leads the Levitt Partners work with NACDD and the CDC. Susan is one of our presidents of our consulting practice as well as our chief risk management officer. Susan, anything you'd like to say? Well, so I will say, Bo, I've actually been on Wolf Blitzer's show. And the distinct advantage to being here is that Wolf used to tape his show on the rooftop of a building in Washington, D.C., and the guests sat on backless chairs, the stools, towards the edge of the roof, and I am petrified of heights. So there's this great clip of me doing a media interview, and I think my teeth are clenched the entire time. It is so much more comfortable to be with you this morning. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, we're going to, through this presentation and discussion with you all, cover five basic areas. Macroeconomics, value-based healthcare, government involvement in healthcare, drug pricing and access, and then of course public health and social determinants of health. So why don't we jump right in. Okay, Andrew. So why are we starting off our conversation about the future of value-based care? By talking about macroeconomics and government spending. The reason we're doing that is we feel like it's critical to make the case that change has to happen. If we don't believe that change has to happen, then it has to be an extraordinarily brilliant policy idea. It has to be an extraordinarily consensus-driven process that causes change to happen. However, If change becomes imperative, then even though it may be clunky, even though it may be controversial, even though it may be a challenge, it is more likely. And so we want to start off by making the case to you that change is coming in healthcare because it has to. Obviously, you can see, with the exception of a few years during Bill Clinton's presidency, Going back to the 70s, we have spent more than we have brought in in this country. Some years a lot, depending on how healthy the economy was, depending on whether there was a, a, it was a time of war, and some years a little, but always overspending with the exception of just a few years around the turn of the century. The gap between spending and revenue is not particularly high relative to what it's projected to be in the future. You can see that gap widening over time. So let's look at another, another way to break down this spending. When we look at what's driving this chronic overspending in our country, you just look at the graph here and say, where are this, the upward sloping lines? It's in net interest and it's in major healthcare programs. What, what this means is that as we look forward and say, what is it that's driving federal spending? The, the Congressional Budget Office says it's three things, that interest rates 
are projected to rise. And as interest rates rise, the amount of debt that we have gets more costly because we have to pay a higher interest rate on that debt. That's what you see in that net interest line that's moving up. Net interest is the fastest growing segment of the federal spending. This year, in, well, I should say in fiscal year 2020, the one that's going to begin in a few months, we will spend $500 billion just paying the interest on our debt. That's about what we're spending all in on the Medicaid program in this country. That's what we're gonna spend just servicing our debt and that's with low interest rates. That's why you see that net interest line beginning to really shoot up and that's one contributor to more deficit spending in the future. The other one is major healthcare programs. That is Medicare and Medicaid. And those programs have grown rapidly and there's lots of things written about what's causing that. But those programs also continue to grow. Social Security is relatively flat. It's predictable. But like Medicare, the surplus in that account is projected to end soon. Other non-interest spending are things like defense and transportation, homeland security, and other kinds of spending like that, which are relatively flat over time. So another way to think about the case for change, why we can't persist spending what we do on our healthcare entitlements can be seen by looking at how employment looks from state to state. If we go back to 1990, which doesn't seem very long ago, this was when you know we were listening to U2 and we were um, very interested in neon colors, um, <laughs> trying to put your mind back in, in, in that time period. The dominant employment in this country, in most states, was manufacturing. There were a few states where big box retailers were beginning to employ so many people that retail became the dominant employment. Moving forward, healthcare began in a couple of states to be the industry where more people were employed than any other industry. And we move forward another five years and we can see that manufacturing in this country is declining relative to service industries, especially retail. Fast forward another five years and we continue to see the decline in manufacturing, but now we're seeing the growth of healthcare and another five years and another five years. So now in almost every state, the largest employers are healthcare. This goes hand in hand with the statistics we looked at a moment ago that shows the growth in spending. These are, this is a very big industry now. And so when we think about how to change that industry, uh, we're talking about a lot of cheese being moved, a lot of oxes <laughs> being gored, a lot of interests at play. So one more look at at government spending then, the national debt is projected to get worse. Wars, wartime spending, has really accelerated debt, um, and that's not surprising. But we're in a peacetime now. We do have an active war going on. It doesn't consume the kind of resources that world wars have, have consumed in the past, but we are spending at levels that approximate wartime spending. And we're doing it at a time when our economy's healthy and when interest rates are low. So this, this is the case for change. This can't continue, right? We won't possibly be able to raise taxes high enough to keep up with this kind of spending. Something has to change. So in a few minutes, we're gonna talk about what the government's doing, and, and there's a lot of evidence of change beginning to happen, but because government is made up of three branches and uh, multiple parties and lots of individual interest, it's not a smooth process, but that change is underway. Now, one of the things we like to do at Levitt Partners is think about trends over time. And we have begun to think about the way healthcare is transitioning by using the, the phrase a 40-year journey. Why 40 years? Well, frankly, we don't have a really scientific answer to that question. It took Moses 40 years to get to the promised land. This year, we're celebrating or acknowledging 40 years that it took China to transition its economy to a market-based economy. It took 40 years for the electrical industry in this country to move where, where consumer choice and competition existed. Industries don't change overnight, and the bigger and more complex they are, the longer they take. The healthcare industry has been going through a, a long period of transition, beginning with the inception of Medicare and Medicaid in the mid-60s. CPT codes came along just after that as a way to bring order to how we would categorize and pay for services. In 1973, the DRG, was developed at 
at Bose alma mater, Yale, and within 10 years, it became adopted by Medicare as a way to control costs. We were thinking about cost control all the way back in the early 80s by bundling together services and paying consistent rates for those services. Moved to the early 90s, and we continued to try and do the bundling of services in outpatient settings with the RBRVS. The AHA patient spill of rights emerged in the early 90s as we began to look at ways to control costs and patients were beginning to feel the pinch of, of choice and of participation in making decisions. By the mid 90s, 50% of commercial insurance was in managed care. And what we found during that time is patients really didn't like that experience and there was a, an unraveling of that. Uh, this is where Hillary Care was hotly debated as a, it was actually a little earlier than 96, um, back in 92, where it was hotly debated as a potential mechanism to control costs. In the late 90s, a report came out identifying huge inefficiency in the healthcare system that was driving costs, but also resulting in poor patient outcomes. And in 2003, the Medicare Modernization Act passed, where we added a benefit, the drug benefit, uh, for seniors. Uh, 2006 is when Medicare Part D began to be implemented from that law. And of course, in 2010, we expanded access to these vital entitlements, trying to provide insurance for people in the individual insurance market, as well as expanding uh, Medicaid. In 2012 and 2014, we began to see the fruits of an aspect of the ACA, which was a department that had never existed before, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. It was basically given some money in the ACA and asked to experiment with new ways to pay for health care. And if those experiments proved successful, it had the authority to move them right into the Medicare payment system and bypass the congressional authority to do that. And that uh, has, those experiments have been underway now for five or six years. And then in 2016, um, more significant legislation was passed, MACRA, an attempt to get control of, of costs. And more APMs, alternative payment models, were launched by CMMI. And the 21st Century Cures Act was passed, which is an attempt to make the technology investments that we've made as a country pay off in more transparent sharing of data. So you can see, looking back to, I would submit, the early 80s, where the value journey was born, almost 40 years we've been working on trying to solve this problem. And as the spending has continued to increase, the creativity and the urgency have also increased. And we believe that over the next five to 10 years, we will see the dramatic results of this work taking place. Not because it's easy or because we want to, but because we don't think that we have another option if we want to maintain economic leadership as a country in the world. One of our largest foreign debt holders is China. China has an express goal for their currency to become the world's reserve currency. Who is the world's reserve currency today? It's the US. Mm -hmm. And so long as the US maintains that position, other countries will want to buy our debt and we can continue to deficit spend. But, so, but if that goes away, if something changes, then we really lose the opportunity to sell debt at low interest rates. And all of a sudden, the debt we're holding becomes incredibly expensive to service. So, Bo, why don't we move? Yeah, any good futurist has predictions, so we've made a few for you. Is it a brighter future? <laughs> I Maybe. actually think, I think it's a bright future after a really significant debate and a, and a crisis. So our prediction, number one, is that the next presidential election cycle will result in a national conversation regarding spending and revenue sustainability. And I think that will happen for four reasons. The first is that we're gonna have a big discussion about Medicare for all in this country. The Democrats will go through a primary election process and as the same thing happens with the Republicans, they'll drift to the left trying to win that primary, just like Republicans drift to the right when they're the challenging party. And so we'll see a lot of conversation about Medicare for all, healthcare for all. It's really an undefined concept right now, but one that ignites and gathers attention. 
Secondly, we expect interest rates to rise. They've been long, they've been low for a long time. Third, economists predict that the um, economy is long overdue for a correction. And as the economy corrects and dips, tax revenues decrease, anxiety about spending increases, and the conversation about spending and the unsustainability of it really picks up. And lastly, the deficit and the debt increase every year. As you all know, a trillion dollars next year but looking into the future, it will be three times that within a decade, $3 trillion a year. So we think that the next presidential election cycle will create a national conversation about spending and revenue sustainability. We think that's a healthy dialogue to have. The second is, without a crisis, substantive changes in taxation rates and spending won't be addressed. The problems that we're talking about here are well known. It's a slow motion train wreck that we're watching and people know it's coming, but politicians aren't incentivized to act in the long term. The visceral nature, the combative nature, the polarized nature of the dialogue means people get exposed when they talk about long-term fixes that cause pain, whether they be Republicans or Democrats offering solutions to that. And so we think uh, a crisis will be a catalyzing event in helping us continue the journey to value. Bo, that's the prediction. There you go. Thank you, Andrew. We're going to move now to value-based healthcare and accountable care organization. Do you want to do you want to give a little context to that? Yes. So um, many of you are familiar with them, but if you're not, an accountable care organization is. Well, I'm often asked, how is that? How is an ACO different from an MCO or the managed care organization that we used to know? An accountable care organization is responsible for a populate the healthcare services of a population of people, but they're evaluated and expected to bend the cost curve, so decrease the cost of providing those services, but they're also assessed against quality scores. So it's an attempt to say and pivot away from the fee-for-service system where we pay for activity to pivot to say, well, actually what we really want is to improve health outcomes and spend less. So the accountable care organization is one construct to do that. And so we should see how many accountable care organizations are there in the United States today. I will say about these, they're very different. Sometimes an accountable care organization is anchored in a in an integrative health integrated health system. So it looks a lot like an integrated delivery network. But an accountable care organization can also be a group of physicians, primary care physicians who are banding together and say, we will be responsible and have oversight on these costs uh, and try to make sure that we do a better job of meeting the health needs of our population at a, at a lower cost. So here, just want to touch a bit on the current value priorities from the federal government saying, what do we want to um, focus on? What's really interesting here is that if I changed some of the names, um, if I changed some of the words here, this could have been, instead of being Secretary Alex Azar's slide, it could have been Secretary Sylvia Burwell's slide in the Obama administration. If you think about there, there was similarly the drive to say, what can we do to move away from the fee-for-service system and to a different way of paying for care and providing care. And key to that is that consumers have access to their own information, that you have more transparency about payers, what they pay for, and their quality scores, as well as information about providers. And then this goal to drive system level change. So taking the reality that Andrew grounded us so deeply um, in, which was really helpful. It just was so depressing. I'm glad you handed it to me. Um, <laughs> I'll try to make it better. Uh, but th these are quite consistent, and I think in showing that, they also are consistent with work, Andrew, that you did with then-Secretary Levitt in the Bush administration. So we are deep into this transition away from fee-for-service to value, and I think you'll continue to see it's not not officially in our predictions, but I bet that these uh, dynamics of value will continue to be important uh, components of the move away from fee-for-service. So then we look as well at what our leaders are saying. So there's quotes here from the, uh, CMS Administrator Verma and Secretary Alex Azar. If we'd updated our slides this morning, we could have included a new quote from Deputy Secretary Hargan, where yesterday he said the move away from fee-for-service is too slow and we need to move more quickly. Now, there are challenges with that, and we'll talk a bit about what are some 
some of the dynamics as we try to move away from fee-for-service. But we include this just to underscore that there continues to be that drumbeat from the leadership to say we need to drive this. And while I mentioned the Medicare program, I'll also say it's becoming increasingly important in the Medicaid program. And so you are seeing more accountable care organizations cropping up in the Medicaid program where, you know, we have the Medicaid MCOs as a different way of, of providing payment within the Medicaid program, then trying to shift some of that financial risk to providers in the Medicaid program. And then it's teeing up a section we'll talk about later when you are trying to do a better job in prevention and keeping people healthy. It sparks interest in things like chronic disease management and preventing chronic disease and the things that you all know <laughs> and deal with and have been um, trying to advance. So the good news is we'll talk about a convergence now as the importance of some of these prevention efforts plays into the changes that we want to see in the, the more formal healthcare system. So I'll just remind us, what are the things that we want to change in the current healthcare system in the move to value? The current system is built on success is volume. So I'm a pharmacist by training and a very long time ago, not 40 years ago, but a very long time ago when I practiced pharmacy, you were always asked by the pharmacy manager how many prescriptions you dispensed that day. The better question might have been how many drug interactions did we prevent or how many drug misadventures did we prevent or how many conversations did we have? Might even have been a better question, how many uh, immunizations did you administer? But the fee-for-service system was built on dispensing that prescription. So if I intervened and called the doctor and said, you don't want to prescribe these two medications together, we should, you know, there's an alternative that's only one, the pharmacy lost money because only one prescription was dispensed instead of two. It's still what you did, but it, the, it was counterintuitive to how individuals were assessed and the payment structure. And that's just, it's the same thing in hospital beds. What's the most common question a hospital CFO will ask? It's, what's our census? So how many heads are in our beds? And it's those type of metrics that are saying, okay, we're providing all this sick care. How do we move away from that? One of the ways to move away from that is to coordinate the care and, and try to say, all right, let's incentivize the right things. So let's incentivize those healthcare interventions or prevention activities that improve quality and, and then would decrease the use of healthcare resources. How do we incentivize coordinating care so that when you take your child or your aging parent to an urgent care clinic, that then that information is communicated back to your primary care provider and you can have a better and holistic understanding of what happened over the weekend. How do we incentivize, one of my favorite examples, that there's a, a state Medicaid program that in pursuing more coordinated care found that if they paid for vacuum cleaners for some of their patients, the kids who had asthma, they decreased their emergency department visits. Now, I see head nods because you know this. We need to get your learnings <laughs> better infused into the healthcare payment and delivery system because it's that type of intervention where in a fee-for-service system, you would never buy that vacuum cleaner because I can't bill for it. You were financially better off, though not healthcare better off, if there was an emergency room visit. And so we have to change some of those things. So here we have the, the future state that we'd like to see in the advancement um, in accountable care or value-based payment. Now I have to give you, though, a little bit of the reality of what's happening in that the value-based payment trend what we're seeing is a change to the healthcare marketplace and simply a reality that sometimes that coordination among physician practices or the coordination from the major health system with the retail clinics and the primary care clinics, that coordination morphs into consolidation. And so you have uh, some big systems getting bigger. It's, the consolidation isn't always bad, but we're also then seeing the market impact of that 
if you have a consolidation in the market, then you become stronger negotiators with the payers. And so there's some sense that we have to figure out how to better support coordination that doesn't necessarily lead to the consolidation so that you can have the strength in the, the system and continue to strengthen systems, but not set something up where we end up with only one dominant player in a market. And then what they say goes, when you have one dominant player in the market, the dominant player in the market in healthcare drives the costs up. And so we, we, there's a tension here that is one of the things that we're trying to figure out in the transition to value is how to push coordination with always yielding more consolidation when we may not want to see that. So this just shows you that there are continuing to be a number of announced hospital mergers and acquisitions. Again, some of them are very helpful, but the trend is, is where, when you continue to add those up, where you get some concern, as well as the increasing size of the physician group practices, so you have bigger and bigger physician groups. Now, that helps with some administrative simplification, that it's easier in a larger physician group, but we want to find that right balance of the consolidation in the market. Now, this is the part where I'm hoping to, to put a smile on the face and say, yes, this is why we care about this. It is clear that when you have the transition to value and to value-based payment or what you would call accountable care, that that should pivot more resources to preventing and managing chronic disease and should help us better focus in what it is that we need to do to implement prediabetes programs and make sure that those are available for patients so that we prevent the development of diabetes. Or if we're trying to manage high cholesterol, that we can do that, that we can do more cancer screening and other activities. When you make a payer and a provider system responsible for the health of a population. They care about the people who they haven't yet seen. And so it's not just the people who are coming into the emergency room or coming into the physician practice. You pivot to saying, wait a minute, I'm responsible for everybody on this side of the room. I want to know your health status because I'm responsible for you or for a year or two years or three years. I want to have a better sense of your health status and what interventions can we put in place to make you more healthy or keep you healthy. So it does lead to this place where I think we have a much better better connection and recognition of the system that the stars of healthcare, well, maybe this is what we should look for, it, um, that the next network television program about healthcare that's really cool is not ER and all the business that goes on in the ER, but it, maybe it's, John, maybe it's at NACDD. And we'll have this, well, George Clooney could play you and that would be awesome, um, <laughs> wouldn't it? But we'll, we'll have a better, instead of, if you think about that, that's how health, you know, how everyone views the healthcare system is through the emergency department. What a failure <laughs> of how we want to say we should be providing care in the, in the healthcare system. So I'll just put that down. It's not in our official predictions, but maybe we should aspire to that, that we'll have the NACDD or at least the chronic disease and prevention. Maybe it's the CDC show in a, in a good way, which I think takes us to our predictions here. So we just should understand that this uh, consolidation is going to continue. And so while there is an effort to see how do we find that right balance, we should just recognize, and you should recognize as folks who work with the more traditional healthcare system, that those smaller physician practices are going away, um, that they will consolidate. And it does change the um, behavior of physicians to be employed versus to be the business owner. Now it helps somewhat in the transition to value to be employed and have kind of different metrics against which you're measured, but it's simply a reality that we'll see that. And then um, this to underscore the prediction that the transition to value is going to require the market to change its outlook, where today you continue to have, at least in some markets, you're the best integrated delivery network or the best health system if you have the best market share, if you have the highest census. In the future, the health system that's going to be scored the highest is the health system that may have a lower census, but it's the people who need to be there. And so they're investing resources in saying, who can we in intervene early? 
and perhaps protect against the development of certain illnesses, but then also who can we take care of in the home? Who can we take care of in other facilities, in primary care access or other facilities? And then we want the right people for the, at the right time for the right services in health systems. Susan, as we make the transition, I just want to underscore a point you made, which is public health begins to intersect population health when sufficient amounts of population health are taking place in a community. I'm going to pause for a moment and just share one observation I'm seeing uh, is that what's driving some of this behavior isn't necessarily bad intentions. Some of you in this room are physicians. You take care of patients. And uh, oftentimes as we make this transition, it's people make, they have the right intentions, but the outcomes become poor. There is bad behavior and people are punished. We read those news alerts often with this fee-for-service abuse. However, the future is bright. So we started off with a sobering discussion about the need for change. We're, we're driving a car with the brakes on, and as our deficit increases, it's like the brake is being pushed harder and harder. We then talked about what's happening in the market to respond to that, and we're seeing some innovative and positive things take place. Members uh, of NACDD have access to the data that we use. We now want to talk a little bit about what the government is doing to respond, and this is going to go from sort of big picture, arc of time, more to this year to address the need for change. I do think it's not insignificant that exit polls showed that voters in the last election put healthcare number one, number one on their list. Short of some big dramatic event happening in our country, I expect the same will be true of the next election. Healthcare will be a big deal for voters. So let's just talk a little bit about what's happening in the immediate term in Capitol Hill and within the administration. As Susan said in her remarks, both Democrat and Republican parties recognize the need to move to value. That's encouraging. The way that they see the path to getting there varies. Republicans tend to favor consumerism, instilling uh, market competition. Democrats tend to favor the guiding hand of government to get there, but both parties seem to share a vision of where we need to get. And if you look at the sort of take the extremes out of both parties, there's quite a bit of commonality. On the Democratic side in Congress this year, we can expect sort of three pillars of activities. One is around healthcare pricing, one is around access to healthcare, and the third is around, and this is maybe a little strongly worded, but sort of corruption. It's investigation and oversight. It's making sure that the administration is working within the fair and appropriate and ethical bounds of its duties. With regard to pricing, drug pricing is a top priority priority. And it, it can include rates that hospitals are paid, but it also speaks to uh, the whole supply chain. The second is on access. Uh, we've talked about the Democratic Party circling around this idea of Medicare for all. It could become Medicare for some, could become Medicaid for all. There are uh, several pieces of legislation and ideas that have been put forward at this point, but I submit to you, and this won't be in our formal predictions, but I submit to you that the Democratic Party believes it's in their interest not to define it early. So it will continue to be a symbol for a long time. Even Much like repealing Obamacare. Just right? like repealing repeal Obamacare replace. was for the Republicans. It was right. a symbol without a plan behind it. And so I don't think we'll see the Democratic Party, including um, the eventual candidate that's selected next spring, define that before the election, because they believe that it's more powerful as a symbol than as a piece of legislation. In fact, Andrew, you may remember we uh, held a session in D.C. in January to talk about some of these things, and one of the staffers from Capitol Hill, Hill um, her analogy for Medicare for All is that it's a lot like your vision for a wedding dress. And everybody's vision is a little different. <laughs> for their ideal wedding dress, you have a, a sense that it'll be a dress. <laughs> Probably white, but not necessarily. And that's about the specificity that you have and the commonality that you have in the Medicare for All structures today. They're, they vary dramatically. Thank you. 
So for the for Speaker Pelosi and the leaders, the Democratic leaders in Congress, they will mostly focus this year on defending the elements of the ACA that are under attack. They won't be pushing as much Medicare for all. There will be the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party that will be pushing that. But those three sub-bullets there suggest that's where the main effort of leadership will be. And then, as we have already begun to see, there will be a lot of oversight and investigation activity looking into health plan relationships, the regulation of healthcare actors, um, oversight generally of the Trump administration. On the Republican side, we see cost and transparency and stable is what they're calling stabilization of the market and pre-existing conditions being um, top priorities. Drug pricing is a priority for both parties. Just yesterday, if you saw in the news, there were five bills that were passed in the House related to generic pricing. Those bills now have to go to the Senate. Because they came out of the House, they have a Democratic flavor to them. They'll be met with a Republican flavor in the Senate, and uh, it may be a little while before they hit the president's desk, but we this won't be on the, our official predictions. Um, so so drug pricing, though, is continues to be a big issue for Republican leaders as well. And both parties are really eager to fix what they call surprise billing or balance billing that happens when patients get bills for going out of network and uh, are left um, in a collections process. Stabilization refers to efforts to really change the ACA, dealing with the individual market, getting association health plans up and running, uh, making sure that, that there is choice in both the individual market and also promoting the growth of the Medicare Advantage market. Republicans recognize that they've lost the messaging battle around pre-existing conditions. Every time it comes up, it sounds like Republicans want to take it away and Democrats are trying to save it. And Republicans have begun to recognize that they're in a losing position and are looking for new messaging and new ways to message to the to the American community that they are in favor of maintaining pre-existing conditions. It, in a sense, it's become the new third rail, if you will. It's become that issue that neither party will mess with, which is the pre-existing you know, pre conditions. I think the ACA put us over the hump on that, and, and we're not going back. The tr administration itself has a very specific drug pricing uh, plan. They call it the blueprint. There are close to 40 steps, I think, in it, Susan, um, of actions that they're taking to address drug pricing. The value agenda, which includes five new payment models that have been announced by CMMI to begin at, in January, and five more expected to be announced that will begin also in January of 2020. So we could have 10 new alternative payment models from CMMI underway in the first quarter of next year. So 10 new experiments in value-based payment. 10 new experiments, which if successful, can move right into the way that Medicare pays without having to go through Congress, where it becomes controversial and where interest groups have an opportunity to influence the outcome of it. So that's significant. Some of these payment models deal with um, the opioid crisis. Some of them deal with chronic care management. Some of them deal with social determinants of health. Some of them deal with population health. So they're relevant to where the spend is happening and where the opportunity for impact is. And just to move us along, I'll just note these four areas are areas of bipartisanship. And as I mentioned, the flavor may vary a little bit, but they generally are areas where there is commonality and interest in working together. And um, that's encouraging. It's encouraging, and um, I expect we'll see more and more of that as we get closer and closer to the cliff, if you will, based on the things we talked about at the beginning of today's conversation. The value agenda is something that's shared uh, by, by both parties. We've talked about the others, I think, sufficiently. All right, a couple of things to, to watch. Um, we've talked about pre-existing conditions already, and that is now uh, sort of safely recognized as something that both parties wish to support. We've talked about Medicare for all. Both sides, however, see it as a winning political issue. And it's another reason why we believe that we'll have a major national conversation about spending and about entitlement programs because both sides want to talk about it. Both sides believe they'll be better off by talking about it. And of course, we are in a presidential election cycle. And so every consideration now is made with the, those elections in mind. And then uh, the tendency to overreach 
is something that we see happen when elections swing power from one party to the, to the next. Resisting that is very hard to do, and both parties seem to fall victim to the tendency to want to really overreach and get things done. And then a few tough Senate races can flip control of the Senate, and so th that'll be something um, to watch carefully this year. Colorado, uh, I think, being one of the more, more noteworthy uh, Senate elections. All right, prediction alert here. There will hopefully be less a manipulation of Facebook. So CMMI will regain its place as a leading driver of value. We say regain because CMMI was very strong and very active in the previous administration. There was a significant question when President Trump won as to whether CMMI would even continue. And that now has been answered. It, not only will it continue, but it will be very active. And it's been working through the leadership of Adam Bowler and with participation and support from Administrator Verma to release these new payment models that we'll see coming in the months ahead. And then with more certainty around Medicaid expansion at the federal level, it is a given at this point that we will continue to see the, the balance of the states uh, expand Medicaid. At this point, um, it is a bad financial decision and also a more popular you know, decision with voters to, to make that, go ahead and make that expansion. Thank you, Andrew. Susan, why don't we move to drug pricing access? Sure. One of the things that we're going to talk about that is trying to be addressed is one of the challenges we have in drug pricing as an issue and a reality for patients is that there is so much of a shell game. And so there's, there's a price, there's a rebate, there's a something that isn't calculated somewhere, but at the end of the day, we do end up at unreported list prices. We distinctly do pay more, or at least the list prices are higher, and then at the end of the day, pay more than others do in other countries. Now, sometimes we've made that trade-off and said it's worth the investment and the innovation, but I think there will distinctly, you'll see in some of our predictions, the pressure on life sciences companies to change their pricing policies is significant. And this is a place where I think we'll see some significant change. But one of the things that's happening in the medication use space and the value-based payment space is that we're moving for certain products to a system where the payment is made only if the drug is successful in that individual patient. So it's called a clinical performance-based contract. Now, this is really quite interesting if you think about it. That's simply not how we've approached medication use in, in the past. So it's for specific interventions, sometimes where you maybe are less uh, confident of whether the drug will work in certain populations, or you want to make sure that there's a narrowing to the right population. So let's click in... And we'll just talk a little bit. So how many of you have heard somebody complain about the price of drugs? Not complain. Observe and, and raise questions about the price of drugs. Yes. Um, you should not expect that to go away anytime soon. Now, the drug pricing has been what I call a podium issue in politics for 25 years. And so being a podium issue, it's an awesome one to stand at the podium and bang your fist and say, we have to do something about drug prices. We have to do something about drug prices. But then if you do something about drug pricing, you don't have an issue to bang on the podium about anymore. And it's been challenging to actually address it. I think we're at a point where that is going to change. This administration has proposed significant changes in how the drug pricing system and reimbursement system works that were um, simply not imagined in the last 10 years. So I think we'll, we're now, we're going to continue to have a lot of podium discussions, but I think we'll also see some, some changes. Um, this I've already talked about in saying that there are movements afoot to change the payment for particularly high-cost interventions. Think gene therapy that really is on the horizon. You have gene therapy approved by the FDA for um, an eye condition and some other things where these are in the hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. Those are the types of things that you want to pay for only if they work. And so this was just about the need to have the right um, identification of patients and move through that. So what I want to flag here is just to say that if we tie together the value economy and what's happening on drug pricing, we're going to see a couple of things. I think you will see changes to how the healthcare system pays for drugs 
that will decrease the cost at the pharmacy counter for individual patients. You may then see some incremental increase in premiums because the, there's a, a balance in the system, but there are significant efforts uh, by manufacturers, by payers, by the federal government to change that dynamic. You're also seeing significant efforts to compel manufacturers that can't just be safe and effective to get to market, they now have to be better than or have better information about how they compare to what is already on the market. So we should have better information about how the new drug compares to the existing drugs and for what population. That's going to drive more outcomes-based contracting where we pay for performance and then need to have wraparound services to make sure that things are used correctly. And I think in all of that, you'll begin to change how, who, and how decisions are made about what medications are used. So there'll be a better understanding of the relevance and the potential impact of a medication for an individual patient and not just based on what we know from clinical trials. So we'll see here if we jump to our predictions because I could talk about drug pricing for a couple of hours, but then you would miss lunch, and we would not talk about social determinants of health, and that's a really important discussion we want to have. What we did want to say here is, as I said, there will be a change in how prescription drugs are reimbursed. Simply, two years ago, we didn't have a good chart about how the money flows through the system, and now there are really helpful charts at showing exactly where the money moves and, and how it moves. And, and in that exposure alone is changing what entities make as it moves through the system. And then I think we'll see that. That means when people better understand how money is moving through a system, then you pretty much have, to, you have the opportunity to disrupt all the players in the supply chain. So we wanted to cover that just as a topical because I can assure you there will also continue, we should have said the prediction that people are going to continue to talk about drug prices. All right, so let's go to where you all are the experts in the room, and we're going to just briefly touch on two things. So we're going to take only about five minutes to share some comments here. But what's intriguing there is when you think about housing and transportation, while the folks in this room have largely understood the broader dynamic of meeting people where they are and trying to improve health through that. That's simply something that many in the traditional healthcare system don't think about. And so haven't thought about whether the um, pregnant woman who's going for her prenatal visits, if the doctor isn't on the bus line, she may not get there. And how do you is that then a question of, well, she just needs to find her way there, or is it finding transportation, or is it finding a provider on her bus line, um, which probably isn't in the primary care finder or the, the OBGYN finder it, as she's trying to do that, and she probably wasn't looking it up. <clears throat> I'll add, excuse me, that it seems like social determinants is today where ACOs were about five years ago where everyone gets it and they understand the principle, but they aren't seeing very many examples of where the concept is being implemented in the context of a, of a payer and a delivery system in a community. There are some examples out there, but it's nascent just like ACOs was five years ago. So you look at companies like this and you see investment money going into businesses that facilitate addressing this, and that's exciting. What's also exciting, or exciting and a huge challenge is, how well did we do data sharing when it came to medical and clinical data? We did awful, right? <laughs> because we spent a ton of government money to get everyone's data digitized, and we couldn't share it. And we had business incentives not to, and we had laws, some of which were appropriate, some of which were just you know, built up over time to prevent abuse of a fee-for-service payment system. Now we're dealing not just with clinical data, but we're dealing with social services data and individual um, response customer data. Uh, we're looking at you know, access to food and social services and all that kind of data that needs to be shared. 
with some of those same challenges. We can't make the same mistake again that we did with clinical data and build these walls and silos. A lot of these companies are aimed at making sure we do this right this time around, but they are competing platforms. And so there's a great opportunity for us, the community, to learn from the mistakes of last time and to identify ways of sharing data and building platforms at a community level that all payers can access, that all systems can access. And that's exciting because we're going to have a ton of money and attention focused on this. Once you make providers accountable for the cost of the population, they begin thinking about things that you all have been thinking about for a long time. And that's exciting. We want to highlight here, and uh, Andrew will talk a little bit about this, but we'll do it briefly, that as uh, one advice we might have for folks in this room, and for all of us really, is become familiar with the markets in which you are working in and serving. We understood this concept early in our, in, in our firm because we had clients asking us for market data. So Andrew, do you want to share a little bit about this and how this fits into yes. the conversation. We have essentially taken a, a, a bunch of publicly available data that's hard to find and epidemiological data, and we've mixed that with claims data and data on market share and on value-based payment, and we've stitched that together in ways that allow you to look inside of a market and understand what's happening. How far are people from care providers? Where are the care providers relative to one another? Where do they refer patients? Where do the patients go after they leave the hospital? This kind of information is available to you to make better decisions around where you put your resources and how you spend your resources, who you partner with in a market. And we, we know that the data will get better over time. We hope that we can help you make good use of it as well. And we're off to an exciting start with uh, Torch Insight. Susan, why don't we share two of our predictions? So I, I I hope what we've tried to emphasize is that we think that as you move to value-based healthcare, value-based payment, that's going to continue to drive the investment in social determinants of health. So whether there are sidewalks available for walking, the transportation system, and just needing to um, better understand the patient population and intervene early, social determinants of health and addressing the social determinants of health um, is gonna to continue to be important there. And then um, data is and will continue to be critical to the success of novel public health initiatives. And Andrew, I think you, you teed up a, a lofty, um, we won't go prophecy route or even prediction, <laughs> but an aspiration to say, let's, let's approach the integration of public health data and the data in the healthcare system in a far better way than the healthcare system addressed trying to share data um, between players. Because I, you know, the, the pharmacy data has been on a standard data asset structure since the early 1990s and yet it's still completely separate from the hospital system and the physician system and, and everything else. So if you build it separately, you can keep it separate. <laughs> but we have the opportunity here, I think, to make sure that we integrate in this moment. One of the things that, that um, Governor Levitt has, has pointed out is that this, where we are in the transition away from fee-for-service payment to value-based care is public health's moment to bring the healthcare system back to a better understanding of the value of public health and the opportunity for coordination and um, investment. Thank you. We've enjoyed our time with you and we've talked about the macroeconomics, we've talked about the move to value, bit of the role the government has in healthcare, some of the key issues like drug pricing. We know and understand as those who are studying trends and traveling around the country and assessing what's happening, we know and can assure you that this is public health moment. There's never been a more exciting uh, time to be in public health. I have a public health degree. I am very proud of that degree. And I think each person in here who has a role in this should feel the same way. One big thank you to NACD and CDC for allowing us this opportunity to share things that we care about. We sure value the partnership. Thank you very much. For more podcasts like this or for more information about the Academy, visit chronicdisease.org.